This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. And one of the things that we've been trying to communicate over the last several weeks is that God is, yes, love, but he's also justice. As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation gives that dichotomy, that that character understanding of God throughout. Now, last week and the week before, we sought to couch the message in illustrations of songs, the Hallelujah Chorus by Handel. Isaac Watts, joy to the world, because man, we got to, we got to look at the second coming of Christ. We opened up Revelation, and in chapter 19, we saw, in my opinion, just one of the most exciting passages that tells of the consummation and the resolution of all that we see on this planet. And I got excited preaching that, and I still get excited when I read it. I can understand why Isaac Watts in the 18th century penned, joy to the world, the Lord has come. But understand this. We can appreciate that joy. We can celebrate it and, and experience that joy because, man, we're excited about Christ coming. But when he does come, the world in that day will not be as excited about his second coming. For instance, have you ever entered a room or come home to a circumstance? Maybe you've had a good day. Maybe you've had a good experience and maybe you're at work and you walk into one of the offices or one of the work areas and you're pretty good. You're chipper. You're excited. Nobody uses the word chipper anymore. I mean, you're excited. You're having a good day and you walk in and all of a sudden there's a group of people just carping and griping at each other. They're fussing at each other. They're disagreeing. They're having a hard time. What is the first thing you do? I don't know about you, but I turn around and walk out. I don't want them to ruin my day. Or how about you come home? Hard day at work, difficult day at work. You walk into your house thinking, oh, it's so good to be home. I can't wait to get home. Oh, it's going to be nice to be home. And here you are, and you're expecting as you come in, mom, dad, kids, this is my second coming home today. I'm here, and you come home, and it's nothing but fussing, fighting, problems, difficulties. Your spouse is upset. Your kids are upset. They're upset at each other. They're upset at you. The day was upsetting. And you know what you want to do? Don't, don't, don't be dishonest. I know what you want to do. You want to turn around and go back out too. Wasn't so bad at work. And that happens in all kinds of places. We walk into situations. We walk into conversations that chances are we'd probably rather not. My wife and daughter, my daughter was at the house last night. And, and, and they were talking about, uh, they were in a catalog trying to pick bathing suits. And I was sitting there thinking, please don't ask me my opinion. <laughs> and praise God they didn't. But that is a situation I did not want to get into. So understand this about this passage we're going to look at in Revelation this morning. When Jesus does come back, and he is coming back, he is coming back in full glory. But when he comes back, even though we, from our vantage point, sing joy to the world, the world is not going to be all that excited, actually, about Jesus coming back. At least not the world system, not the leaders of the world, not the celebrated of the world, not the important of the world. As a matter of fact, when Jesus returns, as we've seen in Revelation's timeline, the world is going to be in a horrible conflagration. 
there's going to be a, the greatest war the world has ever seen. As all the nations of the earth are going to seem to pile in to that certain Hinnon Valley in Israel. And we remember back in chapter 16, the name that was ascribed to this conflict, it was called Armageddon. Even in our language today, when we expect a battle, when we expect a difficulty, we say Armageddon's coming. How was that meeting with the team? Oh, it was Armageddon. How was that ball game? No, oh, it was Armageddon. It was tough. Because when we think of the worst conflict in the world, that's, that's the word that pops up. Or when we think of the final world conflict, naturally and rightly so, the word Armageddon comes up. The word Armageddon is a Hebrew, Greek derivative of the Hebrew, which means place or mountain or even area of rendezvous. And there is this very flattened out area in that area near Mount Megiddo that even Napoleon said would make a wonderful place for a gigantic battle. And it's not far from Jerusalem. And so, yes, when Jesus comes back, King of kings and Lord of lords, and it's going to be amazing, and the saints of God are going to be returning with him, and he's going to be, as he was described in chapter 19, verses uh, uh, 11 through 16, as splendid, magnificent, powerful. It's going to be amazing. Yet when he steps down in Jerusalem, he's not going to step down to cheers and celebration and big party. And, oh, no, 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 no. It's going to be a lot different than you expect. A lot different than I would expect. As a matter of fact, in this passage, we're going to yet see again the whole aspect of God's nature. He is a God of love and he is love itself, but he is also just. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 33, I, I went digging and I wanted to find a, a, a psalm that sort of, or, or a passage rather, that sort of summed up his character. And, and there might be more, but this is the one I came upon. In Psalm 33, it says, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Do you see the balance there? Do you see love and justice in this passage? balanced out as God looks at, deals with, commiserates with the world. Yes, God is love. God is fully love. God is love beyond which we, we really don't have that grasp of the true nature of love. If you want to understand what love is, look at Jesus on the cross. That's that self-sacrificing type of love. The love that puts something else or someone else first. And that is the love of God. That is the true love of God. We have turned love into a fleshly, selfish thing. But true love, the love of God, is sacrificial. But God is also just, which means God will also be judge. And God, because he is just, and we just sang such a beautiful, magnificent song, thank you, worship team, about God's holiness... God must judge sin. God can't wink at it. God can't push it aside. Now he judged sin on the cross when Christ died. But then that's positionally, but now he will judge sin in a practice or practical way as we come to the culmination of the human world system. So when Christ comes... We see God's nature, his love and his justice. As a matter of fact, chapter 19 is bracketed. 
Go home and read chapter 19 on your own because you will see two suppers in chapter 19. Hey, I'm all for two suppers. Amen. Two suppers are great. It's amazing when you have a little supper and then somebody calls and says, you want to go out? Yeah. I've already had supper, but I could eat. Okay. You, you said that. Come on. Don't look at me like you didn't know what I'm talking about. All right. But this is a little different. There are two suppers mentioned in chapter 19, and this chapter is bracketed. And listen, each supper represents one of the aspects of God's nature. You see, first, as we looked in chapters 1, uh, 19, verses 1 through 5, we see the, we see the supper uh, of the bride, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church of, of Jesus Christ is the bride, and we see the, finally the reception, the culmination after Christ has brought them up, after Christ has judged them at the great white throne, and now there is that, that celebration we see in the first few verses of chapter 19, the bride's supper. And it's a time of rejoicing and celebrating, just like every wedding. When you go to a wedding and you go to the reception, it's a great time, it's a celebrative time. But this morning we're going to see the last part of chapter 19. We're going to see the other bracket and another supper, the great supper of God, or the, great, or the supper of the great God. It's called by both. And this is not a cele celebrative supper. It's not a joyful supper. As a matter of fact, it's a very graphic and difficult supper. And you don't want to be at this supper. You don't want to go to this supper. So let's dive in as we look at both aspects of God's nature, God's love and God's justice, as he returns to the earth. So we've looked at verses 6 through 11, or rather 11 uh, through 16 of chapter 19. We've celebrated and rejoiced over the soon coming of our Christ. But when Jesus touches down on the earth, he, he's not well received. As a matter of fact, there's all kinds of junk. The greatest war of human history is actually underway. East against west, north against south. All the places in the earth are fighting one another. And the Antichrist, the beast, is, is leading the large army from the west. The kings of the east are coming in. And it's just a grand war, the kind of which we cannot even imagine. And as we enter into this passage, we see another angel. There's so many angels in the book of Revelation. Angels are God's servants spiritually. It says in chapter 19 and verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Second supper. That you may eat of the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty ones, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and and great. So as we dive into this passage, we see the declaration of this angel. When Christ descends to earth, his, his armies of saints with him, according to Zechariah and parts of the Old Testament, he touches down in the city of Jerusalem. And there'll be a great geographic split in that area. It's going to be just this phenomenal thing. Yet he's not coming to cheers. They're not going to cry Hosanna. They're not going to cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, like they did when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Instead, they're going to be angry, and there's going to be war, and he's going to interrupt it. And in the midst of this, an angel stands in the sun and calls all the birds of the air, all the fowls, 
And this angel summons the birds to come to this place. And it's an odd sort of move. It's an odd sort of switch as you read the scripture. Why is he calling for the birds? Why is he calling them to come? Well, he's calling them to supper. And this is a supper again. You don't want to be the guest of honor. Because quite frankly, there is no honor in this supper. We talk about God putting an end to the the godless world system. We look at all the injustice around us. We see all the division and all the hate. We see all the corruption. We read the headlines and it's evident. And listen, it seems to be getting worse. And there are despots and dictators, as there have always been, but they seem to be proliferating. And the Bible says all of this stuff that you see in the news will one day congeal into this grand and and horrible confederation of nations under this leader, the beast. The abomination of desolation, the lawless one. Many names, the Antichrist as we know him. And he will raise up the world in war and fighting. He will persecute the people of God. And he will lead a coalition of nations in the West, according to Scripture. But there will be kings of the East that cross the Euphrates. As you think of all the things going on in the Middle East and all of the issues happening. Yes, this is all going to come to a head. It's all going to converge. And understand this. The nation of Israel, the area in the geopolitical sphere of of Jerusalem and Israel, is actually the geographic center of the globe. Go online, Google it, geographic center of the globe. It'll tell you in that Middle East area, this is it. And so all of the armies, all of the warriors, all of this godless corruption is going to, is going to congeal in this one place. And man, they're going to be fighting and there's going to be bloodshed and there's going to be horror. This is how the tribulation period ends. But Jesus comes back with his saints in verses 11 through 16 and interrupts it. But they don't cheer for him. Oh no, while he's descending and making his his presence known, and it will be known all over the world, an angel rises and calls the birds and says, look, supper time. Supper time. And the birds will feast. And what they will feast on is literally the rebellion of humanity that extends all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first rejected the authority and sovereignty of Almighty God. When God offered them splendor and eternity and a land of paradise, they spat in his face, took of the forbidden fruit, and plunged humanity into the situation we're in. God loved us, though, and loved us so much that he raised up a Messiah, himself in flesh, came to the earth, died on the cross of Calvary, took the blame for what humanity has done and will do wrong. You know, that's the ironic ironic thing of the whole thing. Our sin debt, which the Bible tells us is death, was paid by Jesus' death. Heaven has been bought and paid for. Eternal life and a relationship with God has been bought and paid for. Yet people still reject it. Yet people still spit at God and shake their fists at Him. Whenever I teach the book of Revelation, people ask me often with all these supernatural things going on, with all the evidence of God's judgment and difficulty, how can people still shake their fist at God? Well, they spat on Jesus when he was going to the cross. They whipped him, scourged him, beat him, nailed him to a cross. How could they do that? The reason why is our sin put him there. 
Even in the Old Testament, when you follow the Jews through their wilderness wanderings and all the miraculous things God did for them, they still kept rebelling against God. And so humanity finally explodes and Christ is going to come. And one of the first thing he does is he dispatches an angel and tells him, listen, birds, it's supper time. And all the kings and all the soldiers and all the celebrities and mighty men and women of, of the world, all those who are fighting and rebelling, the birds will come because this battle is going to be over. Jesus Christ is going to come and he is going to win this war. And literally will feast on not a pretty picture. I grant you it's a graphic, difficult thing to read in Scripture. But again, this is where we have to understand the justice, the just nature of God's personality. He must deal with this rebellion. He's offered a, 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 a free chance to come to know him. The book of 1 John says, even when we did not love God, in chapter 4, it says he loved us and sent his son to be literally the payment or ransom for our sins. Humanity has had not only an opportunity to be saved, but Christ has made it as easily, easy as he could. Religion makes it hard. Religion tries to add works and devotion and dedication and reformation, but religion doesn't save anybody. Jesus Christ became himself the door to heaven and invites all who had come by faith, yes, owning their sin and placing their confidence in him. But humanity still rejects. And so humanity now falls. You've ever heard the phrase, boy, that's for the birds. When you were growing up and your teacher said, you need to do pages 6 through 16 in your workbook, well, that's for the birds. Your dad says you need to go out and cut the grass, well, that's for the birds. Your spouse says you need to do, that's for the birds. You watch TV, well, that's for the birds. Let me tell you something. We throw that phrase off, but it is one day going to come. And all the flesh that we have trusted in, all the flesh that we've celebrated, all the flesh that we thought was going to make us, move us, and be marvelous, one day will be bird food as the world falls at the feet of Jesus. So get the picture in your mind. It's Phenomenally magnificent, awesome battle is going on. Suddenly Jesus comes. And Matthew talks about this, by the way. As a matter of fact, Matthew records Jesus mentioning this in Matthew chapter 24, which you need to read Matthew 24 along with reading Revelation. John didn't just make this stuff up. John, God is simply using John to expound on what Jesus already shared with his disciples and about his second coming and this, this feeding of the birds. Jesus says this in chapter 24, verses 27 and 28. He says, for as lightning comes from the east and flashes in the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, we saw last week that Jesus' coming is going to be a magnificent thing. It's going to be amazing. Well, I saw some lightning flashing last night in thunder. It was incredible. Well, Jesus is coming back in such a way it's going to catch the whole world's attention. But look what he goes on to say in Matthew 24. He says, for wherever the carcass is, there will be eagles gathered together. Jesus himself spoke of this supper, as it were, as all the flesh that we, oh, the flesh that we pamper, the flesh that we, we work on, the flesh that we celebrate, the flesh that we trust, will one day be devoured by the birds of the air. So that's what Jesus returned to. 
And so as Jesus descended from heaven, he summoned the birds through this angel and the feasting on rebellion, because literally we could talk about the graphic nature of feasting on flesh, but at the end of the day, this is why. The rebellion of humanity. So that was the declaration of the angel, supper time, bracketed by and, and, and contrasted with the great supper of the marriage of the lamb. But even in the midst of this, there's still anger and rebellion. We see the determination of the lost in this passage. So Jesus returns. Can you imagine the Bible says just like flash of lightning and thunder, Jesus returns. The whole world sees this. The armies of heaven come and join him. And by the way, again, that's you and me if you know Christ. It's going to be an amazing spectacle. And I've, in, in process of studying for this, I've looked at pictures that artists have tried to paint and, and, and things. You notice there are not many pictures in, in my Revelation PowerPoints. Simply because, in my opinion, they just can't grasp it. I couldn't grasp it and put it on paper. But just as Jesus is returning, look what happens in verse 19. And it says, And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, the lawless one. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war. Look at this. Against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Who are they talking about? Well, they're going to make war with Christ. They're fighting each other. They're arguing with each other. But think about when we talked about the room that you entered into. You're having a good day. You're having a great time. You walk into a room, there's argument, there's problems. You want to walk out. Why? Because you don't want to get involved in it. Because they're going to look at you, well, what do you think? Why did you let this? And they're going to come after you. You suddenly become the center of an argument you have gotten any business being in. So the world is going to be fighting. The world is going to be striving. The world is going to be struggling. Jesus is going to come back. And instead of saying, hey, the jig is up, we should stop. They're going to turn on him. They're literally going to turn their attentions from themselves onto Christ and his army. Well, as they say, I read the end of the book and they lose. And that's why we're looking at this this morning, because this is the end of the book. But this is the nature of godless humanity, constantly in rebellion against God, even when presented with the evidence of God's glory, majesty, and sovereignty, people will still rebel. Dr. Frank Turek, apologist and uh, speaker, goes to college campuses all over the country. And one of the first things he does, and he invites all to come. And one of the first things he does is he asks his audience of college students and professors he says, if I can prove to you beyond a shadow of, I'm not, prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt that Christianity is true, the Bible is true, and Jesus is real, and, and, and the only hope of heaven. He said, if I can prove to you that beyond a reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt, would you still, how many of you would still refuse to believe? And he says, the majority of the hands usually go up. Even though there's proof, even though there's evidence, and what greater evidence could be in store that Christ himself returns? I mean, let's face it. He rose from the dead. One of the most articulated and advanced and accurate historical happenings in human history. He rose again from the dead. Even, even some atheists and agnostics must believe that or at least must accept that. But they try to explain it away. And Jesus said in, in, in the book of Luke, even if one rises from the dead, people will not believe. 
Humanity is just literally hell-bent in their rebellion. And so Jesus comes back in the ways that we've described in the previous chapter in, in Matthew 27, and they turn their hatred to him and his army. But we're spared the details. Let's just put it this way. The world and its hellish mission and its hellish leaders are defeated and they are captured. But notice, they turn on each other and they turn on Christ. That's the determination of the lost. We talked about pride in my Sunday school class today. The very first sin humanity ever committed was a sin based on pride. That's what the leverage Satan used to draw Adam and Eve was pride. And we've been proud ever since. We talk about today Pride Month, June, and we talk about pride parades and pride celebrations. And some people go on and say, well, that's, that's, that's gay pride. What about straight pride? Let's do straight pride. Let me tell you what, that's wrong too. That's wrong. Any kind of pride is a sin. It's not about us at the end of the day. It's about Christ. But humanity is so steeped and so soaked in selfishness that yes, they turn on Christ and they still are. Even though God offers grace and love even though God offers a nail-scarred hand to come to any and all who would receive him by faith. Christ will save what we consider the very lowest of low and the very highest of the high. God is not a respecter of persons. In Aaron's reflection this morning, he made a very important point that is also made in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 is we don't have people as enemies. People are not our enemies. Our enemy is the devil and his minions. And God has reached out his nail-scarred hand to all who would come to him by faith. All who would own their own sinfulness and fall upon him and trust him. And it's amazing when you share that news with somebody how many people will still reject it. So they turned on him. They didn't celebrate him. They didn't honor him. They, they'll turn on him. Talk about the determination of the lost. So the declaration of the angel. The angel says, come, supper time. And the birds can come all together. Because in the place of Armageddon, the bodies of the combatants will be there for their dinner. And they will feast. They will feast. And the reason why is because of human rebellion against God. And when Christ does return, people will turn on him. Because that's the determination of the lost oftentimes. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to be what I want to be. And I'm going to live my life how I want to live. And not even God is going to tell me what to do. Sadly, that not only goes on in the world, sometimes it goes on in the church. So they turn on each other. But then they turned on Christ. So in the midst of all this, we see the destiny of the rebellious. 
Of course, the destiny of the rebellious is to become bird food to a great extent. Their flesh will be devoured. You know, that sounds like such an ignominious death, an ignominious and graphic, sad, tragic end. But that's exactly what rebellion against God is. Rebellion against God does end in tragedy. Here's the thing. All the division, all the trial, all the struggle, all the anger, all the killings and murderings you see in this world are here because humanity continues to rebel against the truths of God. You know, you talk about gun control or we talk about political people coming in and saving the day. Let me tell you something. We've got a presidential election coming up and you had better be careful, my brother and sister in Christ. Because not a, a president's going, not going to make this right. He or she, whoever he or she is, whatever party they come from. And I'm all for voting. I, I, I'll vote. But at the end of the day... More laws aren't going to make this country better. Less laws aren't going to make this country better. I'm going to tell you what's going to... If anything can make this country better and more comfortable and tranquil to live in, it's when the church of Jesus Christ rises up and actually lives what it says it believes. And it actually does so with grace, kindness, and dignity for those who don't know Christ. I'll tell you why a lot of people don't want to become Christians. Because they look at Christians and they don't see anything they want. Because many of us walk around with our noses in the air looking down at the world. We had better get right with God. And whoever gets voted in office, and if you're going to vote, vote biblically. But the church needs to rise up if we're going to make a difference. So the people turn on Christ they began to war with him. Well, that's a, that's a losing proposition because here we see the destiny of the rebellious. Look at verse 20. It says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. Remember back in chapters 13 and 14? We talked about the beast, the Antichrist, this one who would rise up and be a celebrated ruler of the world, and everybody will laud him and cheer him, but he will then turn tyrant. He will have a promoter, the false prophet, and they will do signs and wonders. And everything is going to be, oh, look at that, that is, that is the new Christ. And in reality, it's the old lie. The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. Remember, the mark on the hand or the forehead? And those who worshipped his image. So as we see this, we see the tyrants and the end of tyranny. That tyrannical rule that's going to take over this planet one day, and it will. How do you know, Pastor? Because we read the book. The Bible has not lied before. Why should we think it lies now? The tyrannical government that's going to rise up from this godless world system is going to fall. And while the scriptures shared or didn't share the details of Christ's return as far as his detailed dealing with these people, we see that the beast and his prophet are captured and all the kings. We see the end of tyranny and the end of tyrants. Look at what it says as we continue in verse 20. These two, the beast and the false prophet, were cast alive 
into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. When you think of hell, this is what you're thinking of. This lake of fire that is going to be created. That the tyrants of this world who reject Christ will be condemned to spend eternity there for, for their sin because they refuse to accept Christ who took the blame for their sin. You think of all the dictators who have ever come and gone. You think of the pharaohs. You think of Nebuchadnezzar. Think of Alexander the Great, Caesar. You think of the great tyrants of the Middle Ages. And as we move in the 20th century, we think of Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Pol Pot. We think of the tyrants that exist in our world today. This is their end without Christ. Can they still receive Christ? Yes. My prayer and hope is they can and will. Because this is the destiny of tyrants. This is the destiny of the rebellious. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And when we think of hell, this is what we're thinking of. And they are cast out. People talk about the physical aspects of hell, the burning, the darkness, and we struggle with that in debate and discussion. And frankly, I don't get involved in too much of that because I'm not going to sit here and try to figure out what hell's going to be like. Because I'll tell you what the worst part about hell is going to be. They will be cast away from the presence of Almighty God. And what makes it sad is they had a chance. Because as you've read through Revelation, God constantly stretches out His hand of grace. And rebellious humanity continues to slap it back. I remember sitting and listening to a sermon from Charles Stanley. I'm not a big TV preacher watcher. But I was there and I was doing something and I just had it on. And he caught my attention. Because he began to talk about hell. And he didn't get into the flame or the burning or the torment. He just said... One of the torments of hell might be this. And I thought it was an interesting thought. He said, maybe it will be because they are separated from God and throughout hell they'll hear God's offer of salvation and remember their rejection. Jesus said in Matthew 7, he said, not everybody who comes to me saying, Lord, Lord, have we not done this? Have we not done that? Have we not taught? Have we not? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You that work iniquity. Do you wonder if the person who dies and goes to hell will hear that for all eternity in his or her mind? They will hear the rejection that they did and they made. And they will not be redeemed. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. And I don't think we talk about it enough because... If someone dies without Christ, that is where they will go. I don't like saying that. I don't relish that. I hear people tell other people, well, you go to hell. How can you say that? How can you say that? This is it. You say, do they deserve to go to hell? Here's the truth we all do. I deserve to go to hell. But Christ died and took my 
my, my sin upon himself. He took the blame for what I've done wrong. And I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve a relationship with him, but he gave it to me through Christ. Owning my sinfulness. And in 1978, I placed my full faith and confidence in him. Because Jesus died and took the blame for what I've done wrong, I know I'm going to heaven. Do you? Do you know if you were to drop dead today, you would go to heaven? Hell is real. I, I, I don't want to preach it. I don't want to talk about it, but it's there. And that is the destiny of human rebellion and tyranny. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Continue to read in verse 21. Not only were they cast off, but they were condemned. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on his horse. Remember it said Jesus, when he came back, he would judge with the sword. The sword is his word. That is the standard. That is the judgment. It proceeded out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And this last line is so heartbreakingly sad. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. All the people that are celebrated. All the people that spit in God's eye. All the people that reject the things of Christ. The offer of grace. And the birds were filled with their flesh. You know, as Aaron said earlier, there are difficult passages in Revelation. And this is one of the most difficult, in my opinion, for me anyway. I often wonder when people die... Where do they open their eyes? Everybody rejoiced when Saddam Hussein was killed. And he was a horrible, despotic tyrant, murderer. And he rejected Christ. But when he died, if he died in that condition, he opened his eyes, separated from God. We see movie stars, sports figures, politicians. We read about death every day. And I see on social media say, oh, so-and-so has died. Rest in peace. Do you know if they can or not? Where are they spending eternity? Oh, I don't want to think about that, Pastor. Well, bless God, you better. And I had better. Because each one of us have friends and loved ones, or we call them friends and loved ones, but how in the world can you be a friend and love somebody that you refuse to share the light of the gospel with? Paul said in our Sunday school lesson in 2 Corinthians 4, the gospel is hid to those who are lost. He said, we are bond servants and our job is to go and take the light to them. And yes, some people will reject it. As a matter of fact, when I share the gospel with people, more people reject Christ than accept him. But man, bless God for those people that do. This is why we're here, church. We're not here to have parties and to sing songs and to have this drive and that, that gathering, we're here as the light of God in this world. And the world is depending upon you and me to take that light out with us when we leave this place. Because without that light, if somebody dies in their sin without Christ, they will spend an eternity in hell separated from God forever. That's the reality. 
And we see this happening. So yes, while we rejoice in the second coming of Christ, from our vantage point, it's going to be amazing. But the world, when he gets there, they're not going to be happy to see him. And they're going to quit fighting each other, and they're going to turn on him and fight him. But to no avail. And the birds will eat their flesh. All that they thought was good, all that they thought was important, will be bird food. Paul, as he was finishing the book of 1 Corinthians, as God was inspiring him to write, he speaks of ultimate victory. Because even in the midst of that sad, graphic, horrible description, we see the victory in Christ. Christ will win the victory one day. Christ will right every wrong, mend what is broken, raise what has fallen. But the cost is going to be great. How do we appreciate that? How do we understand the victory? Paul even said in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, and that's a Greek word for hell, where is your victory? And he answers the question. He says, the sting of death is sin. What is sin? Prideful rejection of Almighty God and everything he stands for. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. Why is that? Because the law points out our sin. The law can't save us because its job is not to save us. It's job to show us that we need to be saved. So where is the victory? Where is the victory? I love how he closes that chapter out, though. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He was victorious over sin on the cross. And he will be victorious over sin when he comes back. And you say, but that bothers me. That's hard. Well, here's what you and I do to deal with that. Number one, if you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, you need to do that now. And number two, if there are loved ones and people you say you care about and they don't know Christ, you need to do whatever you can with dignity and grace and patience. But do what you can to bring them to this knowledge. That is how we respond to this horrible passage. It's coming. This is going to happen. But our task now is to celebrate the victory. Yes, joy to the world. But our task is the church 